this part of the Apostles' Creed, the fourth part, says that he, meaning Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, he was dead, and was buried. Last week, we explored how through the virgin birth and through the incarnation, Jesus was qualified to be for us our high priest. And today, we'll note that, but also focus on how Jesus is our sacrifice, that he was crucified for us, that he suffered for us, that he was dead, and that he was buried. We're going to look at this in a few different elements. First, that he suffered. Uh, We're going to look at how he suffered and what the phrase under Pontius Pilate meant, Um, its historical significance. We're going to look at at crucifixion, what it entails, what he went through. We're going to look at the fact that he was dead, that this wasn't just some sort of really deep wounding, but that he was actually dead. Um, And we're going to retouch on the Nicene Creed's phrase, for us and for our salvation. Jesus endured many things on the way to the cross that surpassed the entire range of human experience. And what I mean by that is that in any way that you have experienced suffering, Christ knows your pain. And this was the highlight of last week's teaching, that Jesus, because he was made a faithful faithful high priest through his sufferings, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, experienced a torment and a torture of soul It said in Matthew that he was tortured or that is deeply grieved in his soul. Here we see Jesus, the son of God, wrestling with his father through prayer all through the night, desiring that this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath would pass over him. And yet he says, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus, the son in the midst of a moment of of deep tension, decides to do the Father's will, staying committed to that which he had promised before the foundations of the world in the eternal covenant, that he would bear the wrath of God for us. And so he says he's anguished in his soul to the point of death. This is a a remarkable amount of anguish. If you've ever experienced anything like this, you you may have gone through some sort of period of of deep emotional grief or, or um, a family split, maybe your parents got divorced, maybe you uh, lost a loved one, maybe you've experienced the rejection of unrequited love. Nothing in those categories uh, can touch on the experience that Jesus went through in his soul. And so the first suffering that we mean when we say that he suffered we mean that he suffered in his soul. Here, Jesus went through all of the temptations of bitterness and of uh, disobedience, but he overcame those temptations with faithfulness, choosing to do the Father's will. He did all of that without sinning even once in all of his reasoning and all of his petitions. And that is un unthinkable to us, we who are so accustomed to grieving and, and, and bitterly 
uh, turning against the Father's will. I'm reminded of my actions this morning where I was grumpy towards my wife because I was tired. And, and Jesus goes through this moment in prayer and wrestling with God. We're reminded of Jacob wrestling with the angel until the breaking of day. And, and Jesus wrestles with the Father in the midst of prayer and yet doesn't sin in any of it. Unthinkable. Another way that Jesus suffered was the suffering of failed friendship. This is a, an extremely important uh, understand, uh, thing to understand. That is, Jesus experienced what we experience when friendships fall apart, when people betray us. The 12 who were the most close to him in the entire earth, those were his deepest friends. He asked them to pray with him in the garden. He went off by himself and was wrestling with the will of the Father. And, and he, he asks his disciples, the one who he is training to lead this thing when he, when he leaves, because he, you know, he knows what he's going to do. He, he trains them for three years. And in the most important time, the disciples completely fail Jesus and are not even able to pray through one night. And this wasn't an unusual thing for the disciples. It says that Jesus would often go and pray on the mountain by himself, or he would often go and take a time of rest. This place that they went to in Gethsemane, this wasn't a uh, unique thing. They had been there before. And so the fact that the disciples had failed in this moment was even more disappointing. We have probably experienced friendship failures in our lives, but none to this point. This was his army that he was training. And to, for a, a person in the army to fail at the night watch means that they have let down not only their unit, but their entire cause. And at any point, someone could have come into the camp and uh, ransacked it. And so these, these disciples who in a moment are going to act like soldiers in Peter's cutting off of the high priest's servant's ear, these, these disciples who are the army of the Lord, the church that is going to be going forward, they show that they're not ready to take on the cause. The ones that Jesus was training and teaching for three years had had failed him and had let him down. In fact, this is such an amazing letdown. This isn't just failed friendship. This is failed family. Because Jesus had said of these disciples, when, when, when someone had come and said, Jesus, your mother and brothers are looking for you, your mother, your brothers and sisters, they're looking for you. Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? And he pointed to the disciples and he said, those who hear the will of God and do it. And so what, what this betrayal was in his disciples not, able to, uh, not being able to pray with him, it was not just deep friendship failure, but it was his closest family who had failed him. Not only this, Jesus also experiences the betrayal of Judas. Judas sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And that is an extremely important point. Uh, Judas is negotiating with the scribes and the Pharisees and they, you know, that he, he, he demands, you know, what price will you give him? Uh, will you give me for him? And they say 30 pieces. Um, we won't fully go into the law right now, but in Exodus 21, 32, 
the scriptures set a price for a slave at 30 shekels of silver. It has profound significance for what is happening. Jesus, the son, is going down the road of becoming a slave. That is, he's being led by his own will, yet not for his own punishment to the place of death and suffering. And so this is uh, just unthinkable. Here, the most precious being in the entire, uh, you know, in the entire universe, that is Jesus, God the Son, is being sold for the price of a slave. And here, Christ is being betrayed with a kiss. When Judas comes, this is not the kiss of a holy greeting that Paul tells the, the Christians to greet one another with, but this is the kiss of betrayal. He's taken and all of his disciples leave and they, fl- they flee. They run away from him in his most important hour. And the true shepherd goes and is then interrogated by the false shepherds of Israel and is beaten and is spit upon. Now, after the, he leaves the, uh, the custody of the Sanhedrin, they take him to Pontius Pilate and um, he, he encounters another line of questioning from Pontius Pilate. The phrase under Pontius Pilate in the Apostles' Creed serves a very historical and important function for us. There were many uh, mythologies at the time of Christ the, in, the, in antiquity that talked about gods who had died and then had come back to life in some way. But all of those mythologies, those who heard those stories and told them, they were always heard and told in a way that those who heard and did the telling were doing so knowing that it was false. If you said about a particular God that, you know, when did he die, the, the response that you might get would have been long ago and far away before, you know, the civilization and and things like this. But for us, this phrase provides deep historical significance. Pontius Pilate was what the Romans called a prefect, uh, that is a ruler, a representative of the Roman Empire for the region of Judea. And through historical records, uh, we know that Pontius Pilate was prefect over that region from AD 26 to 36. And so, um, when we, when we believe in the Christian faith, we are believing in a faith that he has deep historical veritability. Various histori- historians, uh, Philo of Alexandria, Josephus, and Tacitus all make mention of Pontius Pilate and the historical verity of his life, that is Pontius's life, is a certainty. In Pilate's hands, Jesus was both scourged and whipped Chunks of his flesh were being ripped off and large sores and cuts were made into his body. Blood was gushing out and this all takes place before Christ carries his cross. The soldiers weaved together some sticks and branches that were uh, thorns and uh, full full of sharp points. And it's not enough for us to just 
remember he had a crown of thorns and not think about the fact that this crown of thorns, a phrase that we're so uh, almost callous to, was actually another instrument of the suffering that he endured. Rather than being adorned with a a crown of praise and a crown of glory, the Romans place and shove into his skull a crown of thorns. Pilate makes an appeal to release Jesus to the Jews, and yet the Jews say, we have no king rather than Caesar. And so what I hope is happening for you in, in, in today's message through, through the reading that we just heard, I hope these thing, themes are weaving together. The Jews here are renouncing Christ as their king. They had, rec- they had failed to recognize him as their Messiah, and we had seen two weeks ago how Jesus was both Lord and Christ. He was both the King of the Jews and the Messiah, that is, he who would save them from their sins. And so the Jews in this moment, when they say to Pilate that he should be crucified, they are, rem- they are announcing their full-blown idolatry, saying that we will have no king over us but Caesar. The sins that took place that led to the kingship being established under Saul in the book of Samuel are magnified a thousand times when they reject God the Son as king over them. Pilate makes this appeal and yet is not steadfast, and so Pilate incurs a sin as well. He submits in fear to the Jews and rather prefers to condemn an innocent man, a man who he said he could find no guilt in, he condemns that person to death in fear of losing his role of authority. For the Jews had made an accusation, if you don't condemn this guy, we're going to go to to Caesar and, and denounce you, saying that you are not a friend of him. And so Pilate incurs this sin and decides to be rather, he rather would be a friend of Caesar than a friend of Christ, identifying himself with the, uh, the sin of the Jews. Crucifixion is a very deliberately slow process, and uh, it's painfully deliberately slow. But it's not just painful, it's also humiliation. Uh, every one of us who has seen a painting of the Lord on the cross or a crucifix, or any sort of visual representation of the crucifixion, always presents the Lord and anyone else who suffered through crucifixion. They always present them with some sort of loin covering. But the Romans, according to all of the historians, didn't do it this way. They did it in such a way as to shame the person who was being crucified. That is, the person who was condemned to death was put on the, on the tree, on the pole, and was before that was stripped completely naked. And because it was a deliberately painful and slow process, this was, this was an act of humiliation that the Romans used to uh, convince others who would be murderers or would be thieves to not go there. You don't want to incur this kind of death. You don't want to face this type of humiliation. Because it was so long, uh, often the victims of crucifixion would have to defecate and urinate while being uh, crucified. And this was done in such a way as to provide the most complete humiliation possible for a human being. Now, all of this sounds very terrible and very you know, meaty and very fleshy and raw, and that's what it is. 
The crucifixion is not a pretty thing and our religion is not a pretty religion. Our religion is a gory and bloody, uh, wrath-removing, Christ-exalting act in which God the Son glorifies God the Father by incurring the wrath that we deserved on himself and for us. And this is not something that we can let ourselves be calloused towards. Every year, uh, you find preachers all across the nation, all across the earth, wrestling with how do you deal with presenting a sermon for Easter. And we're a few weeks out from Easter, but the point being, it's not enough to hear an Easter sermon or to discuss the crucifixion in a way that leaves you comfortable. You should break down and weep when you read these words. It should, it should ruin your heart with affection for Jesus when you consider the things that we say in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus did not merely go through the crucif- crucifixion and uh, then get off the cross and everything was okay. Jesus went through the crucifixion to the point of death. His obedience was total and it was complete. There are some heretics in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries who came up with this concept, which wasn't fully new at the time, but they call it the swoon hypothesis. And it's important for you to know that the creed has already established the heretical nature of this hypothesis. The hypothesis was that Jesus, when he was on the cross, did not fully die, but rather that he just fainted, or he had somehow gotten the physician Luke to give him some sort of concoction that would make it appear as if he uh, had died, but not really had died. And then he, exactly blasphemy. And, and so it's important for you to know that the creed establishes the fact, uh, based on the scriptures and the testimony of the apostles, that Jesus fully died. He had a real body and it really was a corpse and it really was placed in a tomb. Jesus did not merely undergo a bunch of suffering and then wait for a while. He was dead. Last week, we looked at the phrase in the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation. And we're going to focus on it again for just a few moments. Um, All of these things that we've discussed today, they're not new to any of us. Um, Probably not new to to most of us. And that is um, intentional. I, I don't wish to come here and bring you something new and modern. I wish for this morning, for the purpose for which we've gathered here today, I wish to impress upon you that the way to deeper affection for Christ is to see with greater clarity and greater uh, understanding that the work that he did in suffering and in his crucifixion, that that was done for you and revisiting foundational deep truths about the Christian faith is the mean by which you make progress in your fight against sin and in developing worship and adoration for Jesus. So these aren't new ideas and they're intentionally not new ideas. What I hope is new for you is the means by which the Holy Spirit can open up your eyes to see what is in the scriptures and that um, it you can spend time intentionally going through the foundations of our faith 
And that is the primary means by which you make progress in walking out the Christian faith. It's not about fasting more or, or reading your Bible more or praying more or doing more things. It's about seeing Jesus with greater clarity. Those things can be a means of grace by which God can give you greater insight to what he has done in purchasing your redemption. But the, the means by which, no matter, no matter how that comes about, whether it's more prayer or more fasting or more devotionals or more uh, fellowship with your brothers, if, if you do those things and don't come to a greater realization of the person and work of Jesus as through in every part of the scripture, those will lead you to other ends than to deeper devotion and adoration for the Lord. And I'm, I'm not trying to say that if you go to a church and they have a seven-week series on how to have a better marriage, I'm not saying that's spiritual diversion. What I am saying is that in everything that we do in the Christian faith, all of it is to the end that we would bring glory to Jesus by by focusing on and magnifying his worth. What we sang this morning in Be Lifted High was, was what Jesus had said. If I, was, if I would be lifted up from the earth, then I would draw all men to myself. That is, if we would make the work of Jesus central in the church, then the world would plainly see and uh, our witness would be clear and, and present to the world instead of we, the church miring around in a sea of un unimportance uh, and irrelevance in our postmodern world. That's the two options that we really have. The creed in, in the Nicene Creed, it has the phrase, for, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. So these aren't new ideas. These aren't novel approaches. This is the bloody, gory gospel of Jesus. You should see everything that we're discussing today, Jesus's sufferings and his temptations and his trial and his crucifixion, not just as the facts that they happened historically, but you should see them for what they are, the God-glorifying redemptive work that brought about your salvation and redemption to the Father. We're going to close with... Uh, three passages of scripture which I will attempt to not comment on. Hebrews 2, we looked at this last week, starting in verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Now, just to make it clear, this is Jesus. This is a Old Testament passage that's being quoted by the writer of Hebrews, as if it's being said prophetically by Jesus. That is, uh, you know, the children God has given me. He's. This is talking about Jesus 
uh, who Isaiah says will be called the eternal father. Jesus, the son, isn't the father, but in some way, the children, that is the disciples, are, are those who the father gives to Christ. So, so don't get confused here. Jesus isn't the father. The father is the father. Jesus is the son. And yet for us, he is seen through scripture's words as being the father of our faith. That is, he's the reason why we're here. And, and so in this verse, what, what we're about to do in communion, this, this is the explanation of verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that is, the true sons of faith. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Um, Propitiation is uh, a very large word that just means the act of making someone who is not disposed in favor towards you now is disposed in favor. That is, someone's angry with you, and then a propitiation takes place, and now they love you. That's what the the scripture means when when it uses the word propitiation. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, or tabernacle, not made with hands that is not of this creation— He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So these two ideas in Hebrews 2, Hebrews 9, Christ is our high priest and he has removed from us the fear of death through which before Christ we were subject to lifelong slavery, that is slavery to sin, Because of the fear of death, we were constantly in our idolatry, attempting ways to make God favorable toward us. And yet through Christ, through his high priestly work, being a mediator for us, offering a sacrifice to God that was pleasing and acceptable, has removed the fear of death off of our lives because we know that the wrath of God, which Paul says in Romans 1, is no longer over us. The wrath of God has been removed from us. And then the second idea in Hebrews 9 is that because Jesus offered himself without blemish, we ourselves are to live in a pure way and our conscience should be washed and not filled with defilement. That is the goal of the cross, the goal of Jesus' suffering, his death, his burial, all of that in these two, not not even getting to the resurrection, All of that was so that we would live in a relationship with the Father without any fear of death and that we would live holy and righteous and blameless. That's the reason for which Jesus died. And then finally, Jesus not only died for that, but he also left us 
a model for which we have to endure through suffering, both of, of emotional pain, like Jesus lost his friends, or, or through the betrayal that we, incur, or we encounter in our life. Not just that, but when, when the religious leaders, uh, either out in the world or we are mistreated by church leadership, any, anything that we've encountered, any suffering that we encounter through our life, the scripture says Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate for this reason, that we would have a model to, uh, to emulate, to, to, to look to when we suffer. First Peter 2, 21 through 25, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's a poor and unfortunate thing that sometimes periods and sentence breaks are introduced into the scripture where they don't really match the original text. But these last two verses say, by his wounds you have been healed. And then there's an important connecting word that says the word for. So it says, for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the Lord. And because of that, by his wounds you were healed. I want to make that point really clear. If you haven't returned to the Lord, if you haven't come to Jesus as your precious, wrath-removing sacrifice that, that has brought you to union with God, if that hasn't happened by faith, then you have not been healed by his stripes. But oh, the precious joy that comes for those who have. The idea that Christ has taken away all of this wrath and all of this suffering that we should have encountered, that idea that, that because by faith we return to the Lord, we hear the gospel and respond in faith and, and turn our lives towards Christ and come under his lordship, that is a wonderfully joyous thing. So Father, we thank you for your word and we ask you to make your word clear that you would give us eyes to see the preciousness of what we say in the Apostles' Creed when we utter the words, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That we would, uh, in, in whatever way possible, through the aid of your Holy Spirit, that when we meditate upon the simple truths of Scripture as said in the Apostles' Creed, that we would see them for all their rich detail and granularity, the joy and the infinite glory that awaits us because of what your son has done, the friendship and the fellowship that is possible because of the wrath-removing sacrifice of Jesus. We ask you, God, would you open our eyes to see your son 
to see him suffering and dying in our place. God, we ask you that you would procure, that you would make possible in us, that you would bring about in us a deep and lasting admiration, affection, love of your son Jesus, that he would be our most precious treasure beyond all others. In Jesus' name, amen.